Um, awesome day ahead of us. We have some baptisms. We did some baptisms first service. We'll have some this service as well. And I just, I thank the Lord for the text that he provided for us today on Baptism Sunday. It just um, correlates so wonderfully. We're going through the book of First Thessalonians. That's a letter in the New Testament written by Paul, working through it verse by verse like we often do with um, scripture. So would you do this? Would you stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? And then we will get on into it. Again, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Here's what it says. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of God. Father, would you bless the reading of your word? By the power of your spirit and the proclamation of your word today, would you minister to us? Would you open up our hearts? By your grace, would you do within us what we cannot do ourselves? Would Christ be seen as beautiful and as lovely to us? Draw us near. Open up our affections for you. And may we live in light of the truth, the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Today's passage has us all on common ground. Every one of us. Every one of us. It meets us in a place that we are all very familiar with. The place of pain. The reality of loss. The reality of grief. It's just a simple brute fact of of being human. No one escapes the sorrow of this life, do they? No one gets out unscathed. So it's no good ignoring it. It's no good pretending it's not true. And and here, regarding the, the pain of loss, the realism of our faith in Jesus shines forth. Authentic apprenticeship to Jesus does not deny sorrow. Or pretend we don't feel the aches and the pains of grief. We do. See, hope in Christ is not without tears. But it is known through tears. The way out is through. The way out is through. Now before we get into the passage and open it up, uh, let me acknowledge something that should be obvious. Uh, We want to handle Scripture wisely. We want to handle it well. We believe it's God's word. And so we want to read it on its own terms. We want to read it in context. We want to read it in relationship to Jesus and in light of the larger storyline of the history of redemption, what God is doing in the world through 
Jesus. And so we pay attention to the flow, the logic, the narrative, the story arc of it all. And today's text is notoriously controversial regarding end times stuff. Um, the expensive word is, is eschatology. Tribulation, a rapture, resurrection, the end of the world kind of stuff. And so we want to be careful to follow the logic of the passage, not to turn it this way or that. So let's follow the narrative and let's read well. Uh, Lord, help us do that. Now, uh, recall that Paul, who wrote this letter, Paul is writing to a church in the city of Thessalonica. It's a church that he and some friends planted. Silas and Timothy and, and Paul planted this church there in Thessalonica. And Paul loves this church. He loves these people. But he can't be with them. He was actually persecuted. He was driven out of town under the cover of darkness. He, he had to leave. People there were upset because of this gospel of Jesus that was turning everything right side up. The gospel was subversive to their broken ways, and so they resisted violently and pushed against it, and so Paul was ousted. Now, Paul loves these people, so he wants to know how in the world they're doing. So he sends Timothy back to check on the church, and Timothy goes, then Timothy comes back to Paul and says, Paul, Paul, you're going to be so happy. They're doing so well. They are living a life full of faith, trusting in Jesus. But there's also some items of note where they need encouragement. They need some teaching. And that's what we're going to see here in our passage today. And in this passage, Paul shifts to a new topic that must be addressed. And that's the topic of grief. And it's the topic of hope. See what he says there in verse 13. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So it seems grief was troubling the church. It seems after Paul left, some of the members of the church died. The word here is asleep, which is a euphemism for death. Uh, and it's not just in Christian circles that the word asleep means death. Uh, if you go back through ancient literature, pagan, uh, Jewish, Christian literature, asleep usually means death. And, and we can't be sure of this, but it's highly likely that those who died, died from some form of persecution, right? The church was different in the world. The church was, was hated by the world. And so there was violence against them, just like there is today in countries all over the world. There's violence against the church, and believers are killed simply for professing Christ as their king. So maybe that's what happened. We, we're not quite sure, but it makes sense. I mean, Paul was was beaten, he was run out of town, he was um, almost killed, and, and so here we go. Here's some more um, likelihood that this is happening to other Christians instead of just Paul. Now, uh, the grief is rattling the church, the, the grief is troubling the church, it's causing questions to rise. So Paul, um, who's a good pastor, who's a, who's a loving, caring pastor, he, he tends to them, he meets them in their sorrow. Now, first thing I think we should do is we should note what Paul doesn't say. And we get this wrong an awful lot. He doesn't say, stop your grieving. He doesn't say, hey, Christians, they don't cry. He doesn't say, suck it up, get on with life. He actually tells them to grieve. He does. He tells them to grieve. He knows that we need to grieve the losses and the aches of life. He knows as image bearers 
that we need to process trauma and hurt. We don't just stuff it down. It needs to be dealt with in a good, healthy way. And so he qualifies the grief. He says, do not grieve as those without hope. Do not grieve as those without hope. Because he knows as human beings, we're going to err on two sides of this thing. We are either going to swallow grief and deny it. It just hurts too much, so we don't want to go there. So we swallow it and we deny it. Or we fall off on the other side. We are swallowed by grief. We're swallowed by it. And then we enter into despair. And he says, neither of those is the answer. Apprentices of Jesus don't swallow grief, denying its presence. Neither are they swallowed by grief, succumbing to despair. Rather, they do something strange. They contextualize it. They set the grief in the hope-shaped story of the gospel of Jesus, allowing it simultaneously to be true grief, but not tragic grief. They contextualize it. They set it in the bounds of the hope-shaped story of the good news of Jesus Christ, allowing it to be true grief. So it's processed, but not tragic grief. It doesn't possess us and own us. It's a hope-shaped grief set in the bounds of the good news. It does not get the last word. And this is so countercultural to the world that the Thessalonians lived in and, and also the world that we live in. There was someone named Theocritus, and he had this saying that was known throughout the ancient world, and this is their worldview. It was simply this, hopes are for the living. Hopes are for the living, but the ones who die, they're without hope. Happy day, right? That's it. It's just done. Or there's another famous ancient inscription that said it this way, I was not, like I wasn't alive. I am not, I'm dead. I care not. doesn't matter. And that was kind of the worldview. There was just this gloomy, gray understanding of a, an abysmal, gloomy afterlife. There was no, no joy, no, no hope. Hope was gone. But as Christians, we have a hope-shaped grief. And I want to talk about hope here really briefly, because hope is not just some naive optimism. I know we, we've talked about this before, but let's, let's get this deep in us. Hope is not just wishing something good will come about. Hope is knowing a good is coming and then waiting for it. Very different. Or you could say it this way, hope is not I wish so, so I wonder, is it going to happen? We'll see. Biblical hope is I know so. I know so, so I wait because it's coming. So what does Paul know? What does he know that reshapes grief to be what it ought to be? What is he certain of? that he and we are waiting for. Well, he explains that in the next verse. So let's follow his logic. On to verse 14. He says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. So what we have here is Paul has addressed the problem, right? He's addressed the problem. Loss, death, grief. It's not just a problem, it is the problem of existence. And now he shows us the solution, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Humanity, through sin, has brought death and ruin into God's world. We have refused his good 
lordship over it all and unplugging and disconnecting and breaking ourselves from him, the very source of life, what's left is death and entropy and disintegration. And so the further we go into sin, the further we go into the disintegration, things falling apart, we go further into death. But God, but God in Jesus has acted to reverse the curse, to reweave shalom, peace, that is all things as they ought to be, total flourishing, total well-being. The curse reversal and shalom reweaving, this flourishing, this happens through the work of Jesus Christ. And here in the passage, he hits it quickly, but it's important. Jesus died. Jesus died. This is the cross. This is the sacrifice of King Jesus, the perfect one, the innocent one, the one who is fully man and fully God, who steps in as a sacrificial lamb and dies in our place. Puts death to death, covers our sins. And then Jesus rose. Jesus rose from the dead. Here is Here is the empty tomb, right? The opened tomb. He conquered death. He brings life. Our sinful old heart, the old us dies. Our new living heart, the new self rises to life with him as he gives us the gift of his spirit by grace. And then his bodily resurrection leads to our forthcoming bodily resurrection. We will rise bodily to live forever. The, the scripture is very clear. We, we don't exist eternally as some kind of bodiless, ethereal, kind of floating, abstract beings. We are embodied, but the new body is beyond description, better than we can somehow imagine. A redeemed body no longer subject to decay and ache and entropy and corruption. It won't fall apart. So Paul says, as it is with Christ, so it is with those who trust in him. Death doesn't get the last word. Death is not a definitive period at the end of the sentence of life. Rather, it's a comma. It's a comma in the sentence that begins the story of one's true life. And now having doubled down on this basic teaching of of the faith, Paul goes on to address a question that causes some wondering in the church there at Thessalonica. Well, what of the believers who've died? What what happens to them? Will they miss out on the party? Because they know know Jesus is coming back. That's one of the early teachings that was was taught right away. Are they going to miss out on the party? Will they not experience the victory parade when Jesus, who is king, comes back and justice is made and all things are made right? Are they going to miss out on it? Are we not going to be with them? Are we not going to be with our family? Paul's answer is incredible. It's glorious. And if we have the ears to hear it, it can place an expectant and invigorating joy in our life that changes, that changes our, our moments, that changes our Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. It changes how we live in the present moment. So let's, let's continue on. Verse 15. He says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord when Jesus comes back, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, there's a lot in there, and I have to leave a lot on the table. But Paul, in short, says, friends, no one's going to miss out. No believer in Christ will miss out. The dead and the living will see the return of Jesus. The dead aren't second-class citizens, right? It's all going to work out. The dead and the living will see the return of the king, will participate in his, his victory march and be able to celebrate when all things are made right, when all the tears are wiped away. There will be a glorious forever family reunion, is such good news. And we'll get into why exactly. By the way, what Paul teaches, it's not speculation. He's not just guessing. I mean, how would he know? He hasn't died. He hasn't seen the end of all things. Well, he knows because Jesus has told him. And Jesus has died. And Jesus has rose from the dead, right? And he is Lord of all creation. He knows what's coming. So he knows Jesus' teachings, and in fact, and I wish I had the time to do it, but there, you could do a gorgeous deep dive in the, into the unity of Scripture here and take Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, if you're interested, take Matthew 24 and read that in relation to this Thessalonians chapter, and you will find parallels all the way down. Paul is teaching what Jesus taught. Not only that, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, taught Paul personally. These are the words of Christ that we are hearing through Paul. So what does Paul know on good authority? What does he know on good authority? Well, if you're anything like me, sometimes you can get lost in a text like this that doesn't quite speak our language. So I laid out seven of the things that he walks through. It helped me. I hope it helps you. So what does Paul know? What did Jesus teach him? And, and here it is. First, King Jesus will return. He was prophesied to come in the first place, and he said he's gonna come back again. He's going to come back and make right of everything. King Jesus will return. Second, he will come from heaven to earth. He will bring heaven and earth together. He will restore all creation and make what's called the new creation where we dwell in his presence. Heaven and earth come together in Christ. Third, he will call all who are his to himself. He's not gonna forget any of you. He's going to call us all together. All who are his will be with him. Then we learn that the dead believers will be resurrected first. They are not left out, somehow uncared for. The living at that time aren't somehow more special. He loves us all. Fifth, then the living believers, they will be caught up. And the idea here is that they will be transformed, physically changed, like those who are resurrected with new resurrection bodies. Those who are living, they will be caught up. And in, in the twinkling of an eye, Paul's language in another place, they are transformed as well. And then sixth, his people will be with him in his glory forever to dwell with him. This is the story all along. In Eden, God wanted to dwell with his people. In Revelation, God will dwell with his people. They will be his people and he will be their God. It's what we are designed for. It's what our deepest aches long for. And that will be the case throughout all eternity. We will be with him. And then seventh, Paul helps them understand how they should live in the meantime. 
God's people are to help each other live in light of this glorious future reunion amidst present grief. Guys, we're agents of hope in this world. We are called to be agents of hope. So here is the shape of hope. Here is a certain future that refashions today's sorrows and griefs. It doesn't diminish them. It just changes the shape of them. They're true, but they no longer are tragic because they will be turned into something beautiful. If the loss of brothers and sisters is not a final period, but is a comma, it's akin to a temporary separation, not an eternal one. And if the story that follows that comma is that we get to be with our good God and our loved ones in Christ forever, well, that's good news. It's incredible news. Mourning will turn to celebration. Sadness will become joy. Now, with kind of that overview said, let me do a little historical and cultural context here that brings a lot of depth and meaning to what we just heard. So bear with me on a few word nerd things here, but I think they're important. Um, so the first one is this. Paul uses the word parousia. You can see it up there. See the word um, left until the coming, parousia there. It's a Greek word, and it's important. Uh, this means coming, presence, or arrival, but, but not gen- just general of anybody coming and arriving. It's the arrival of a dignitary, a king, or an emperor. It was a technical term that was used in society, in an an empire, a technical term. So when Caesar came to a city, his arrival was a parousia. When the emperor came, his generals would have the trumpets blown to call people to attention. The people in the city would then run out of, of the city, outside the city walls, line the roads to see their king, and then to escort their king or their emperor into the city. And there was a great celebration. It was a victory parade, song, and fanfare. This is a historical reality. The historian Josephus tells us how the people of Rome came to meet Emperor Vespasian outside of the city after he had come, after, after conquering, winning some battles. He came, and as he came, they were outside the city hailing him as benefactor, as, as soter, as, as their savior, their protector, the one who provided all that they needed, the glorious king. That's how they hailed him. They then escorted him into the city where he could see how they had responded with the resources that he had given them, if they had been faithful to him and his mission. And then they would celebrate inside the kingdom, inside the city there. Now, if that isn't enough to load this well-known custom into the Thessalonians' minds, as Paul's trying to do, in verse 17, he does it again. For us, the words are, are to meet, right? You see that there, to meet? Well, in Greek, it's another technical term, apontesin. And this, this now is the technical term for the delegation that leaves the city to go outside, and they're the ones tasked to greet the king and say, come on in and give him the royal escort in. So it's a greeting committee to escort the king in his perusia. The, the apontesin and the perusia meet, and then they go inside. Okay, but what's the point of all those big expensive words? I'm not a Greek scholar, um, and I'm not asking you to be, but there's an important thing in here. Paul is saying, look, when Jesus returns, it's something like, something like something that you know and you have seen in this world. When the king comes to the city, when the emperor has come, you know what a big deal it was. You know the joy and, and the celebration and the excitement 
that it wasn't also the fear for the enemies of the king who were hiding in the city. You know that, you've experienced it. So it may sound foreign to us what he's saying, but Paul is speaking their language. And I don't know how to quite translate that into modern day, but let me try something that, and it's, um, it'll probably fail, but I'll give you a shot. I'll give it a shot. So um, when I come home at the end of the day, um, five or 5.30 or so, uh, I, I roll into the driveway, and if the kids um, aren't busy watching TV, if they hear the car, here's what happens. Is I'll, I'll hop out, and I'll start to walk up our front sidewalk, and then I'll see the front door open, and one, two, or three kids will come running towards me. And they're all screaming what? Daddy, right? And usually the two girls, the youngest of our kids, one will get this leg, one will get this leg, and they'll hold on to it, and I'll have to kind of walk slowly in the house like this. Um, and then as this is happening, they're saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then we go in the front door, and one of them will shout to mom, what? Daddy's home. It is the most heartwarming thing. I love it. And someday I know I'm not going to have it, so I'm trying to savor it now because someday they won't even talk to me when I come in the door, I imagine. But why do they do that? Their love and affection spills out. They wanted to see dad. Dad hasn't been home all day, so they don't just wait inside. They can't wait to be with me by God's grace. And then I, I walk in with them, and we, we hug, and we snuggle, and it's incredible. It's love that brings us together, and then they escort me in and announce to mom, dad's here. Now that is the palest, tiniest little sliver of a shadow of what is going on here in this passage. I am a broken, flawed parent. We are talking about the king of all creation who loves us perfectly coming to his world. And we will meet him. And in a a victory parade celebrating, we will come to his kingdom together. All praise and glory going to him. Thank you. Hallelujah. Praise God. What good news. Now, in light of this, I confess, I've been thinking a lot about this hope shape grief uh, personally. I've been dealing with deep grief personally. Separation from loved ones by death. Separation of loved ones and friends, beloved family members because of distance and miles. This is no new news to you. Well, let me ask you, do you know anybody you love that you care about that has moved or is moving? Almost everyone in the first service raised their hand. It is a season of upheaval and change, and it's hard. I've had to say goodbye to many beloved family members in this church. You've seen me cry on the stage innumerable times as we've blessed people, as we've sent them out. And the parting is hard and it's sad and it's hard and it's sad because there's love here. Grief is a tribute paid to the one lost. And whether you lose them to miles or you lose them because they've passed, because they've died, it's hard and it's sad, but it's only temporary. It's a see you later. For someday we will be together again in this glorious reunion The living and dead family of Jesus will be feasting and celebrating together. And this isn't some cold comfort. 
This isn't some psychological or religious coping mechanism that we have to invent. This is wired into our very beings. This is the real happily ever after that we're created for. This is the reality and this is the substance of all the happily ever after stories that grip us and draw us in. Those are shadows. This is a substance. Now, that doesn't change us crying and aching. We grieve, right? Paul doesn't say stop grieving. We grieve, and it's true, bonafide grief, and it hurts. And some days, you can't even breathe because you don't know if you're gonna make it another day. But hope's tears shimmer with the light of what is to come. You grieve, but there is a reunion coming. So for apprentices of Jesus, death is merely a comma in a good story. It is not the period at the end of a tragic tale. Now, Paul is a good pastor, so he helps them now to live in light of this. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the last item, the seventh item on that list of, of his logic flow, okay? So we need to re-see the reality of this coming glorious reunion daily. Um, the last... The last verse says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. And then up here, you see his people are to help each other live in light of this glorious future reunion amidst present grief. So Paul's thinking clearly. He's addressed the problem. He's shown us the solution, what God is doing in this world through Jesus Christ. And now he calls us to live in light of that. We are to help each other live with the grain of the reality, live in accordance with the truth. But the problem is, sin makes us like sieves, like, like colanders. Sin cracks our heads and our hearts and punches holes in our souls, so all the good living water, the truth that is poured into us, what happens to it on a daily basis? It just spills out of us and we forget who we are and we forget what God has done and we forget the truth and we start to buy into the lie. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We need to preach the gospel to each other every day, over and over and over and over again. And so we're to preach the good news. We are to Mourn with those who mourn. We are to rejoice with those who rejoice. Helping each other recall this glorious reunion. In other words, and I love the way my friend Lewis said this, we are agents of hope. So I stole the line and I added it to this. We are agents of hope. We are called to remember and rehearse the future of our glorious reunion. We are called as agents of hope to remember it and rehearse it with each other, this future of our glorious reunion. I was with another friend this week and um, he brought this quote to mind and I thought, man, I wanna share that with the church family because it's just, he lays out so beautifully what we've just been talking about. Actually, this is uh, Pastor Laren who reminded me of this, this quote. This is from Frederick Beekner. Uh, an author and a pastor who's, who's passed. Um, but here's what he says. Listen to this. He says, the worst isn't the last thing about the world. Isn't that good already? The worst isn't the last thing about the world. It's the next to the last thing. The last thing is the best. 
It's the power from on high that comes down into the world that wells up from the rock bottom worst of the world like a hidden spring. Can you believe it? The last best thing is the laughing deep in the hearts of the saints, sometimes our hearts even. Yes, you're terribly loved. You are healed and forgiven. All is well. The worst isn't the last thing about the world. And with that, I want to share my heart with you here for a moment to share how this scripture personally um, and how brothers and sisters in Christ have encouraged me in this truth, have helped me rehearse this reality. See, years ago, um, just over a decade ago now, a shadow, a dark shadow began growing with, within me. And I know that might sound dramatic, but it's the only way I know how to describe it. In 2011, um, Marla and I lost our, our firstborn son, uh, Haven Timothy Hardesty. And the grief didn't just cut to our hearts, it, it changed us, as grief does. It changed us. <clears throat> and it reshaped me, and, I, and honestly, I didn't realize how much it had reshaped me. And so a fear grew inside me, a creeping shadow that, that darkened me, my thoughts and my affections. And, and later, we lost our younger brother Ben in a motorcycle accident. And it changed us. And the wound is real. And the shadow that fear grew twofold then at that point. The dark dread of loss loomed even larger. <clears throat> now, um, in the years between and since, I have buried many friends just like many of you. But as a pastor, I've buried a lot of friends and family. I have also lost friends to challenges and difficulties in ministry and life. And I've also lost friends to the miles, so to speak. We live in separate parts of the country now. All this to say, I didn't realize how much the loss had affected me and reshaped me, how much the fear of death and losing a loved one had come to grip me. But... Here's the happy turn. This year, through excavating that grief and fear with a counselor, praise God for good counselors, through friendships, through talks with Marla, through mentors, some who have been sitting in here today, I have seen that shadow of fear dissipate and fall apart in the light of the gospel. And I've had hope reshape my tears. And I am living more and more now in the glorious, in the light of that glorious future reunion. And last, last weekend, another step forward in my hope-shaped grief took place. And I wanted to share it with you as, as we bring this to a close. Sitting on a garden bench last Saturday in my backyard, Silas and I, he's our eight-year-old, we finished reading the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia. It's called The Last Battle. And I'm sorry, I know there's some kids in here um, and there's some of you who haven't read this book in here, but I have to talk about this. So spoiler warning, do what you need, okay? Uh, but it, it was published in 1956, so it's not on me. <clears throat> As the last battle ends and the restoration of all things begins, every sentence brought me one step closer 
to a flood of tears. As the old, ruined creation gives way to, to Aslan's glorious, Edenic new creation, I watched my son's eyes grow wider and wider because he was, he was troubled the chapter before. Because there had been loss, deep loss, unexpected, surprising loss for, for a book like this for, for younger kids. And there was violence, and I could see him trying to process it. But then something happened. Then they were in Aslan's country. And then a character would show up, and a character would show up in this beautiful landscape, and a glorious union was unfolding before our eyes. And those who had lost, they were back. The Pevensies, Rune Wits. Caspian, Tyrian, Trumpkin, Jewel, Puzzle, Truffle Hunter, Mr. Tumnus, and Reaper Cheap. And with each happy reunion, Silas would say, Yes, he's back. She's here? The centaur, too? Yes, yes, and he's pumping his fist. By the end of the reunion, Silas was literally dancing on the bench in the Saturday morning sunshine. He intuitively, guys, listen, he intuitively knew that the glorious reunion after the loss, after the sorrow, was the way it was supposed to end. It was in his bones. It's in yours. It's in the shape of our hearts. We are made for eternity. And that means to be with our God, and that is where joy is found. Happily ever after is wired into your soul because you are made by a good God who wants to be with you. If only we had the eyes of a child to see again the true story of our shining resurrection future where all the tears are wiped away. How different our daily problems and our daily walk would be to live in such light. And there on that sun-washed Saturday morning bench with First Thessalonians and this sermon floating through my brain, with the reading of Narnia's beautiful end hanging in the cool air, and with my eight-year-old son, Giddy, and dancing on the bench, the light of the gospel pushed back that shadow that was put into my soul 10 years ago. God is gracious and good. And I cried Hope's tears that day, not because I was sad this time, but because I was granted a glimpse of the coming glory. I cried Hope's tears overwhelmed with the smallest but the most marvelous taste of an oncoming and unending joy, an oncoming and unending joy shared with you, my friends and my brothers and sisters in Christ, because we'll taste of it together in full. It's coming. And shared with my brother Ben. And shared with my firstborn son Haven. And I pray I get to see him and Silas dance on a bench in eternal sunlight someday. Friends, the dead will be bodily resurrected someday and we will shine like stars. And the living will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye when our good king comes back. And these days of grief that we now know, let us, every one of us, encourage each other that these light, momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let's pray. Father, you are good. What a good dad you are. Thank you for sending your son 
Lord Jesus, that by grace we could be changed and transformed and be made new. Thank you for life abundant and life eternal in our King Jesus. We love you, Lord. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.